Hi, it's Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, it's Mark. They're in. Nice. Taking it to the next level. Launching phase two of Gable Media on October 7th. 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 I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Practice Disrupted. Hi, Janine. Hey, Evelyn, and welcome back, listeners. Janine, you were first introduced to our next guest at the Young Architect Conference earlier this summer. He's also been on a few podcasts. Tell us a little bit about what specifically interested you in bringing him on and having him share his story on Practice Disrupted. So I I first heard Juan Daly speak about managing his personal mental health at the summer series. And I knew he was friends with a bunch of former AIS officers. So we had some mutual friends in common. And I went back and listened to his episode on the Young Architect podcast. And he has such a compelling story to share about his journey from growing up to going to college and setting out to go down a career direction that he's going to tell us about today. However, you know, he's doing a lot of interviews right now. And I want to be respectful that um, there are a lot of interviews out there that set that story up, and I highly recommend them to our listeners. But we're going to focus on a different direction on one Daly's story, and that's on his entrepreneurship journey. This interview is going to focus on his journey into social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurship is actually a growing interests, I would say, I think even in my time in business school, if I think about the classes I took, you know, Tom shoes was one of the first case studies that comes to mind that is trending in a lot of business schools, the notion that from the beginning, they were going to give a pair of shoes for every single one sold. So buy one, give one. For me, I've really seen the growth of businesses that are in the business of serving the global community by using business as a force for good to steal from the B-Lab slogan. And as of this podcast, there are actually over 3,500 certified B corporations in 150 different industries in 74 counties. And for those of you who don't know what that is, a certified B Corp is a new kind of business that balances purpose and profit. So it's a type of corporation, not dissimilar like from C-Corp, S-Corps, or being an LLC. So they are legally required to consider the impact of their decisions on their workers, customers, suppliers, community, and the environment. So this is a community of leaders driving a global movement of people using business as a force for good. So if you Think about B Corps that you might know today. They include brands like Ben and Jerry's, Allbirds, Clean Canteen, Patagonia, Athleta. And there are a lot more companies that are really out there trying to do good in business while also being profitable. So 
Coming out of school, I ended up going to work with a bunch of different nonprofits in architecture, and that got me into that social do-good world of architecture, including volunteering with Architecture for Humanity, who was a huge inspiration for me during my undergraduate studies. And I was inspired by that idea of social impact and a social impact justice approach towards architecture. When I went for my MBA, I pursued a concentration in social entrepreneurship. And so social impact or social justice design or any of those terms that you want to call it, it, you know, it's also previously known as socially responsible business. It's a lens through which essentially I studied all my business classes. So including econ, finance, marketing, and so on. So social entrepreneurship is about building and maybe really at its core, running a business with a priority towards ethical leadership and decision making. And companies that tend to fall into this category are businesses that prioritize people, community, perhaps the environment, diversity and inclusion and more. And so obviously, I thought coming from architecture, it was a really natural bridge into the world that I had already studied. And so Juan Dealey, who's our guest today, he defines social entrepreneurship as impact first and profit second. So a little bit more about our speaker. Wandili Mitiani grew up in South Africa at a time when his community was first navigating a post-apartheid existence. Apartheid was a system of institutionalized racial segregation that existed in South Africa and Southwest Africa from 1948 until the early 1990s. He observed that a lack of dignified housing from apartheid architecture impacted his community. His career has been inspired by his drive to solve affordable housing. His local municipality afforded him an opportunity to study at Andrews University, located in Michigan. He was finally able to meet like-minded peers and make his lifelong dream a reality. With this urgency and desire to help his South African community, Wandili found opportunities to learn from his professors and classmates about engaging his passion for architecture while using these skills as a tool to empower shanty towns back home. This was the birth of Ubuntu Design Group. He was 25 years old when he was selected from a pool of over 21,000 applicants to become an Obama fellow. The Obama Leadership Program is focused on leadership development and civic engagement. Janine, why don't you tell us a little bit more about his company? Sure. So Ubuntu means I am because we are. And Ubuntu Design Group is an architectural organization that focuses on social impact design projects ranging from individual housing to urban design scale. Influenced by his childhood experiences growing up in a post-apartheid South Africa, Wandili founded UDG on the core idea that if apartheid architecture could be used to segregate and oppress, then community-led design should liberate and enable opportunities for all. UDG developed the concept of the Ubuntu home, a dignified work-live home designed to enable the families to financially sustain themselves, as well as to empower the local community. Wandili is also the founder and director of the Ubuntu Architecture Summer Abroad Program, an intercollegiate educational experience in which students learn a community-centered approach to impacting large communities by designing and building dignified and culturally influenced housing for resilient families. In 2017, UDG built their pilot project, which was a home for a low-income Durban-based family also struggling to live in their current dwelling with a disability. 
This inspired the designers of UDG to develop their unique model in a way that would facilitate future projects with more public and private companies. The power of this model is in the transformative programs that would make quality housing more accessible by providing micro mortgages for entrepreneurial low-income families. The project was a finalist at the South by Southwest Eco Place by Design competition and won the Student Grand Prize Award by the Congress for New Urbanism for Best Urban Design. Ubuntu's approach won the Resolution Project Social Venture Challenge in 2015 at One Young World's Global Youth Leadership Summit. And through the World Merit Platform, the concept was presented at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Great. Let's cut to the interview. Have you always known that you wanted to be an entrepreneur or was that something that you discovered along the way? Um, I think I've always known that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It's uh, crazy. I remember, you know, growing up in an in informal settlement in Durban, South Africa, uh, there was this like cult <laughs> uh, where these folks would worship, like they would use like white rocks. Uh, around the tree, and that's like that's where they would worship. It's called Shembe, right? And uh, basically, what I would do is I'd go find these rocks and sell it to them <laughs> <laughs> to make money. And then sometimes <laughs> I'd go steal them at night and sell them again in the morning to them. I <laughs> was terrible, but <laughs> but from that I was like six uh, selling these rocks. And then from there, I started, like, I would go to, like, the local supermarket. You know how, like, when you just finish buying stuff and then you have a couple of coins with uh, your receipts? Uh-huh. And, like, a lot of people just, like, throw that on the floor by accident or you just don't care. You know what I mean? So I picked up all of those coins, got to five rands. I bought sweets, which were 100 sweets. And I was able to, to make, like, 100% profit from selling those sweets to kids. Uh, I may have gotten chased out of Sunday school a few times. <laughs> and it, and school, like real school, because I wasn't supposed to be selling stuff at school. So I've just always been doing these crazy entrepreneurial ventures uh, growing up. That's like a whole nother level of entrepreneurism, because I think not everyone has that level of hustle, especially <laughs> at that age. <laughs> You gotta hustle to survive, man. It is. <laughs> That's true. And Evelyn, I don't know if you heard this story. I, I don't want to repeat it too much because um, I want to save it for people to go listen to the full episode. But they talked about him. He knew he was going to go to college, and he needed funding for that first year to to pay for college. And so he went to was it, it was your government building? Was it a mayor or a yeah. Durban mayor. The Durban mayor, he showed up every day to talk to them to see if they would sponsor him or if they would work with him. And he was ultimately really successful because he convinced the mayor in, you know, a chance encounter as the mayor was coming in the door to talk to him about the work that he wanted to do for his community. And that was what helped him. And then later he, he continued to go back and try and figure out like how to keep funding school year to year, which to me speaks to someone who is really savvy and is thinking about like, how to, um, you know, take risks, secure funds and, and funnel that into the work that you're trying to create in the world. So I wanted to 
uh, transition into talking about the Ubuntu Design Group, which is the company that you started. And I wanted to ask you more about what you're doing and some of the unique things that you're working on. Yes. And maybe even before I touch on that, just to maybe close out from the discussion we were having about sort of hustle and where that comes from. I think when you grow up in a low-income community that's a disadvantaged community, not necessarily by choice, but by history, uh, in, in the case of South Africa and even the United States with apartheid architecture, um, you know, pushing certain groups of people to particular neighborhoods and devoiding them of opportunities, both economically and, and socially, which results in, you know, lower income, higher crime rates, no uh, jobs, etc. So what, what ends up happening is like you, you grow up with a certain level of like resilience because it's like, well, we're on our own and, you know, everything that we need to do uh, is stuff that we need to do to survive and, and, and make it through, right? There's also this perception that no one else cares <laughs> uh, about that particular situation because no one is doing actively doing anything to change that situation. And I, I would assume, you know, folks growing up in places like the south side of Chicago may have uh, a similar mentality. So then you you can look at that in two ways where it's like, oh, well, we're screwed and then, you know, there's nothing I can do. Or it's like, okay, how can we fight to get what's ours, you know? <laughs> how can we fight to sort of make the most out of the, the situation and be able to sort of come up? Um, and I, I think a, a defining element for me in all of this is wasn't just about how do you then fight or work or creatively innovate to be able to sort of make it out. It's like, how do you creatively innovate to make it out so that you can build a bridge for everyone else uh, to be able to come up. And I think I said this in a few different podcasts where I'm saying that like in the West there's this notion that, you know, people in low income communities are uncreative or lazy or any of these things. But the the, the truth is opposite because it's it's folks who are on those blue collar workers who who build our skyscrapers, who build our stadiums, who build our homes. They just don't have the same level of finances to finance those buildings for themselves. And, you know, folks who are able to build a house out of anything, that's how you have shanty towns in these informal settlements. That just goes to show the level of creativity and ingenuity that exists. And, you know, growing up learning and, and seeing all of that really inspired me to want to do architecture so that I could be able to maybe have a platform to, to highlight some of that creativity and ingenuity, but also to learn some of those, you know, key structural elements and, and things within architecture to partner that with the local ingenuity to build sustainable, safe, culturally contextual homes and communities and spaces and places that are inclusive and equitable uh, for all. And that's what Ubuntu Design Group exists to do. And that's what the Ubuntu architecture somehow abroad as well uh, works towards. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm really glad that you shared that because I think that really is important to your narrative and the story that you had this greater vision and that's kind of what has propelled you into entrepreneurship and creating this business. So how long have you been running your design studio for? So, Well, I started in college um, in 2015 
And basically, throughout college, when I was learning architecture, it was very Eurocentric architecture. And a lot of buildings that we were assigned to do, or the ones we were learning about, I never saw myself even walking into them or living in them. You know what I mean? And I never saw my, my community you know, even having the privilege to see those type of buildings, right? Right. So I always, you know, push back on, on our professors in the context of, you know, you guys are always talking about, like, you know, we need to do social impact, whatever, but that's not reflected on on the designs that you, you, you assign us to do, right? Like, on the, on the education we're learning. So as a form of protest, but also as me living up to why I came to study architecture in America, I started a book to design group with that fundamental premise that you know, what about the other 90% of the world, <laughs> right, that don't afford uh, our expensive buildings? And that's how Ubuntu Design Group started designing. For, for me, housing has always been personal, just because of where I came from. Like, how do we solve affordable housing? So I started designing this Ubuntu home model where it's a home with a commercial component. And the idea that like a house doesn't take you out of poverty, but a commercial opportunity does create economic opportunities for yourself, uh, for you to be able to maintain that house, and, but also for you to impact the rest of the community. So each home that we built has that component. We designed and built a pilot home in collaboration with Andrews University. And the family, we, we built it for the Mchali families in Obobulu. They live with disabilities, and they had lost their uh, mud brick home due to a light rainstorm. We worked with them and the community and designed and built a home. Now they're living in a dignified home. The the lady, uh, Mrs. and Charlie, had worked at a daycare for 10 years, and now she's running a daycare that's attached to their home. We built the daycare for six kids. They've got 18 kids. They've over tripled their income. They're now taking the profit from that daycare. They're building a whole new facility. 18 mothers can now go to work as they send their kids to school. So like, right. could, could a house be more than just a place to sleep in? Could it be a place that enables commerce, enables opportunity, uh, enables education? And that's some of the things that we've been looking at when we're working on such uh, work and projects. When I think about the people that are graduating right now, I think like, a lot of people gravitate towards the type of work that you're doing and and would love to be a part of that. I, I guess my, my question is how how do you support yourself? How do you support your staff? Um, is it through partners? You know, how how do I how do I do that type of meaningful work and you know and still feed myself? That's a, that's a that's, I think that's a very good question uh, that we are also still trying to figure out. <laughs> uh, but I would say, you know, at the very least, the first step that I'm taking is to normalize that type of work. You know what I mean? It's, it's normalizing that. So there's a couple of things that we're doing and uh, figuring figuring out on that regard. So one of them is we're working on this micro mortgage model. <laughs> Uh, and we've been building this for like the past two years now, where, you know, we design and build homes for low income entrepreneurial families, uh, who are land owning, build a home and it has a commercial space. And then they're able to not only financially, 
financially sustain themselves, they're also able to, to pay off the micro mortgage uh, towards that home. So what that does is it enables us to scale the model, but also it enables us to, to pay it forward and make it sustainable. So we're working on that and we're having conversations with different local banks and trying to figure out how do we, I think one of the biggest factors or issues we've came across is just like the cost of construction being a little more expensive. How do we then value engineer that down whilst keeping dignity? You know what I mean? So there's those elements that we're currently working on. But also, you know, outside of the home model, we are just a uh, social impact architecture uh, firm. So we work with organizations that are trying to have social impact in communities. Like we're designing a, uh, a daycare for a, a township in South Africa right now. We're working on designing a, a school for kids with autism in Angola. So it's through those sort of design projects that we are able to sort of make money as we uh, create interesting models and test them out to hopefully create a, a future where inclusive architecture is the norm. You know what I mean? But then also for people who are interested in getting into this type of work and you know being a part of innovating uh, in architecture that serves the other ninety percent. You know, that's how, that's why we started the Ubuntu Architecture Summer Abroad, which we're going to talk about in more depth. That's a good segue. So you created a summer program for students to come to South Africa and learn about your community. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, because look, when I went to architecture school uh, in Michigan, when we were being taught about like architecture history, uh, I remember... You know, I was excited because I saw, like, on the glossary that, you know, the first chapters we would be learning about, like, Egypt and Mesopotamia and stuff like that. I was like, oh, man. Uh, or African architecture. It said African architecture. And then, you know, we got there, we started learning. But there was, like, practically, like, 22 pages of Egyptian <laughs> architecture. And the interesting thing was that, like, within those 22 pages, it said, and this was the bedrock of what we now know as, you know, Greece or Roman architecture would led to the Renaissance, which led to where we're at today, right? So, like, the invention of the columns, the colonnades, uh, the orders, all these things all came from African architecture or Egyptian architecture. And then we spent the rest of the 700-page book learning about Renaissance, Baroque, you know, and all that stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> So my my thing was like number one, there's a lot more to Africa than just Egypt because I wasn't from Egypt, <laughs> and I, <laughs> you know. And then number two, it's like it's made me disconnect from architecture because I felt like maybe architecture wasn't for people from my community or people like me or people, you know. what I mean, apparently we didn't have anything to contribute to the architecture world, and you know, I think. That has like you know significant impact on on, on architects, and I think um, I M P says a very interesting quote on, on on this. It says architecture is the very mirror of life. You only have to cast your eyes on buildings to feel the presence of the past, the spirit of a place. They are the reflection of society. Yo, that, that's 
you know when i when i read that it's it's encapsulates exactly how i felt like the architecture that we're teaching is a reflection of society right so i know there's a lot of with you know black lives matter and police brutality and all these things and everyone is like oh man these cops are doing this blah 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 but the bigger question is this is not a cops problem it's bigger than that right like in order for these cops to be in these neighborhoods someone had to design them back in 1950s 1960s it's us who were at the roots of creating this systemic problem we designed segregated neighborhoods which resulted to levittown and south side of chicago and you know apartheid architecture in south africa and then what that did was the, these places were devoid of economic, economic opportunities, good education, which led to higher dropouts rates, higher unemployment, which directly scientifically correlates to higher crime rates due to scarcity and higher crime rates then justifies higher policing by the government in these areas. And then the higher policing then leads to what? Police brutality in African-American neighborhoods. So what this program is doing is educating the next generation of socially inclined architects to design more equitable, inclusive spaces that allow opportunities for all. And the first place to start with that is educating uh, these young architects about the role that architecture has played and continues to play in social justice, right? But it's not enough to just point out what the problem is. They also get to be a part of designing and building a home for a family that was negatively affected by these very same exclusionary architectural practices which were done in apartheid architecture. And I think one of the, the, the key towards this program was I wanted to strip away people from their emotions that they're attached to their context and environment and the politics and everything that clouds sort of the narrative around social justice and help them learn about this in a very totally different context, which is South Africa, and then about African architecture, how apartheid architecture affected people, and how they are now being a part of the solution of that, and hopefully take those principles back to Brooklyn, Chicago, Michigan, and wherever they're from, and, and start designing more inclusive and, and uh equitable spaces. Can you tell us more about the community? And also, to your point, if if we're re-educating architects, especially American architects on what African architecture means, what do you want people to know about African architecture? What's the most important thing that they should understand? I would say, I think we need to start by saying um, the fact that there is something called African architecture, right? There's a lot of creativity and ingenuity that exists and that has come out of African architecture, which has been the bedrock of the architecture that we're designing today. So essentially what we're doing is taking people back to the source and helping them realize where all of this is coming from and, and what it all means. And what that does is not just in a um, sort of, you know, those short-term... <laughs> missions type of programs but in a very immersive uh and benef mutually beneficial uh arrangement where at the end a family has a dignified place to call home and then at the end these learners get to know a lot about south african history south african architecture and 
bottom-down architecture where they learn from these communities. And I think one of the important things that happened when we when we did this program with Andrews uh, is that we started seeing how people's mindsets were shifting on architecture. I remember this girl coming up to me. I was like, man, I, di- I didn't know architecture could save lives and have so much impact. I thought it was just all about walkable streets in San Francisco and infinity pools and, and all this stuff. So it's been a very life-changing experience to to learn from these communities and their resilience and their ingenuity and how they do things and to help these young American students to realize there's more to the world of architecture uh, than just what we are learning, right? And then then their own context. And what this does is it starts enabling these young architects to design for more than just their own cultures, for more than just their own selves, to be more inclusive and to, to think about others as well. I wanted to offer an opportunity for you to to promote the program. So is it is it just open to Andrew's students? Like if I'm a young architect or if I'm a, a student right now, how, you know, is there opportunities for me to get involved? How many cohorts do you guys have? What does that look like? Yeah, no, that's the exciting part. So it is open to everyone regardless of the school that you go to. So that's exciting. And people can take it as an independent study or an elective um, contingent that your school uh, agrees. We will send them a curriculum and we will have a conversation with them. Or you could just take it as, you know, independently uh, as an individual. So our application deadline is on the 30th of October. But another exciting uh, part of the program is that we are working to have different partners. So like, for example, Michael Risica and the Young Architects are sponsoring a student, and so they have a, a little Young Architect scholarship. Uh, so different architecture firms or even individuals can be able to contribute towards uh, having an, a scholarship for, for students to come and learn about this equitable type of architecture and these different levels, and they can see it all on the Ubuntu Architecture Summer Abroad website. And each scholarship creates a scholarship after your name or that particular architecture firm's name or whatever they would like it to be called. So it's really exciting. And we've created the scholarship program because, again, we want it to be as accessible uh, as possible to, to, to everyone. We have a cohort of 30, so uh, space is limited, yeah. <laughs> and you're going online, I noticed. Um, I was wondering about that because when we first started talking, you, I think you were probably trying to figure that out, but it looks like you guys have decided it's going to be a virtual cohort. Yeah, um, as it stands right now, we are going virtual, which is also an exciting and new challenge. But what that means is everything is still the same because the program starts in the spring and ends at the beginning of the summer, right? And the construction of the house happened in between. We want, we want students to, uh, or participants to be able to learn the design whilst also learning the local construction methods there so that that kind of comes together. We're going to still have those interactive conversations with uh, the contractors, the builders, the family, the community, uh, et cetera, virtually. And the reason behind that is because a lot of schools have very firm statements around uh, traveling uh, right now. So it's just like they can't take any course that has travel on it. So that's why we're doing that. However, individually, if you still want to come, <laughs> independent of your school, then we'll make arrangements. But yes, we have gone with it. 
That's great. And I, I mean, I think it's really cool. Would you accept a, a non-student participant if someone who's practicing wants to participate? Because <laughs> I think yeah. there might be some people that would be interested. Oh, definitely. We de- definitely we would be. Uh, we're looking at young professionals and uh, some architecture students, preferably from third year up. So it's going to be an interesting mix. And another thing that happened, which is really cool, recently I became friends with uh, Inkosi, which is uh, the closest word to that is the, the term king of the region where uh, Beyonce shot Black is King. King oh, yeah. Zulu Nadal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So he's going to come in and teach us a little bit about Zulu tradition and Zulu architecture, which has gained some sort of influence. That. So that's going to be really exciting. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a project that you might have in mind so that the listeners can understand, like, what what would they expect in terms of participating? Yeah, so uh, we're we're doing housing, affordable housing for, um, you know, a family, the the family that we'll be designing and and, and building for is in a community called Obumbulu, and each home will have a commercial space, and uh, it's a matter of learning about that particular place, the context, that family's needs and how they live on a day by day and how do we then design something that fits that but also uh, works within the budget constraints and the local. So, all, you know, navigating all of these things is going to be really uh, fun and key and that's what the program will be about. I'm glad you brought up the idea of learning about local building materials and local building, like historic building methods. Um, when we did that episode with Ilya, he also mentioned that for the communities that he works with. Um, and I think it's really important, you know, I think a lot of this work with social impact justice work, when you go into a community, there's a balance where if you're bringing skill set into a community, and especially if you're coming from America, like you have to be open this is not a one-way relationship. This is about learning about the community, learning about what's important to them. And you're bringing skill set, but more importantly, it's a um, two-way relationship where the community um, is also helping design the project. They're also helping to inform what the final product is. And I think what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that this program really is rooted in helping people understand the history and the the cultural uh, implications of the architecture there locally. And so I think it's a great opportunity for someone to kind of immerse themselves and understand a different perspective in the world. Yeah, no, um, definitely a very exciting one. Um, and, you know, when we ran it the first time, uh, it's just like some students started crying when they, <laughs> when they realized some of the impacts all of this has, and also when you just learn about the people. And again, I think it's easy for us to dismiss people as uh, lazy or bums or this or that because we don't know them. But now you get to work with them and know them and, and realize how amazing and, and creative and, and all this stuff are. And so it's just like, it's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Before we move away from the Avanti group, because there's a, there's a few other things from your story that we would really love to touch upon. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, 
<laughs> what lessons what lessons can you share for as a young entrepreneur to pass along to other aspiring entrepreneurs specifically you know something that they should do and then maybe something that they they shouldn't do or or something that inevitably might have made things harder than it needed to be along your journey <laughs> it's a good question uh i think a couple of things number one sacrifice right so you can't be an entrepreneur and, and want to succeed and have impact blah 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 and still want to live a normal life as your friends are working next five <laughs> your life is going to definitely be a little more stressful uh, a little more crazy and a little more uh, less structured as they are. Uh, so I think number one, you you just need to be to be ready to sacrifice and hustle. And then number two is you're going to come to the end of the road a lot. Like there's a couple, there's been a couple of times every year around January, I hit a point where I'm like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> 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 Why am I still here? You know, what I mean? like you question yourself a lot. And the only thing that makes you get past that is like the why. So you gotta have a strong why on why you're doing that. And from what I found, just making money isn't enough why to keep you through the hard times. <laughs> because you can still make some money, you know, by leaving that and going to do something more conventional. Fail a lot and fail forward. And again, that's how you get to what you think is the end point. For example, we were talking to this bank before COVID, COVID and everything was getting well about the micro market and everything was about to sort of come together. And then it's just like over one week, everything fell apart. <laughs> like our lawyers dropped us, uh, the bank, you know, kind of backed out and everything. And then I was like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> that's just like the end of the world for me uh, for a little bit there. And then I was like, uh, after two weeks of recovering, I came back and now we're doing more and different exciting stuff, you know? <laughs> so you constantly need to bet on yourself, right? You got to bet on yourself. It's like, well, okay, that didn't work out. Let's keep going. But more than that, something that's really helped me, when I started Ubuntu, I competed at a, a program called One Young World and I won a uh, business venture competition and uh from there i got mentors uh business mentors from like wall street harvard school of business and you know canada and uh, it's through a program called the resolution project definitely check it out if you're still an undergrad they have been amazing so whenever i reach all these points i can always like pick up the call and, and call a ceo of my mentor like bro i don't know i tried everything i did everything right like, what the, <laughs> <you know? laughs> it's always helps to have people that are rooting for you mm -hmm. and uh it's hard it's hard for me and for other entrepreneurs sometimes to step back and, and smell the roses and see how much impact you've been able to make and how far you've come but they always remind you of that and also it's like, okay, so this didn't work out. So what do we do from here? And that that perspective sounds like very low, but it means so much because it's like, oh, I'm not alone. Like there's people who believe in me, who are with me in this process, who are there to help me and provide resources and networks, etc. So man, mentorship is everything uh, in this process. 
I mean, it's interesting because when I hear people talking about wanting to start their own anything, really, whether they're a young architect, whether they're even mid-career professional, you know, they're like, I want control of my schedule. This is why I'm going off on my own. And what they don't realize is that you do have more control of your time, but... (laughs) But you also might be working (laughs) twice as much, too, um, because everything that you weren't doing at your nine to five that was helping that nine to five thrive, like now you're doing everything. Yeah. So I I think that's that's just like a, a cautious reminder of like what it takes to kind of step into that role of of an entrepreneur. I think one of my friends always says, uh, new levels, new devils, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like every atmosphere you get to just know there's like new challenges that come with it. Because, you know, at one point I was frustrated by yeah, a couple of interns, uh, whether it's be performance or coming in late to this or that. And I was like, yo, I don't get it. Like these cats are coming in late. I still have to do all this work, but I still have to like, you know, talk to them about these things and this and this. And it's like, yo, Remember when you were at a nine to five, you didn't have to think about that. You just did your own little thing and you passed it along and you didn't care where it went. <laughs> Someone had to figure that out and make sure the team is working well and, and stuff like that. But, you know, so those are some of the things that's a part of it. But also just like it forces you to grow so much from interpersonal relationships to learning about finance to think quick on your fit and being able to uh, be able to best present yourself in your work, etc. I'm glad you brought that up because I have also been feeling over the course of becoming a full-time entrepreneur that maybe I was made a little too harsh sometimes on looking at the people that were running my companies, you know, not <laughs> realizing how far stretched then they were and like you say wanting more of their time um and then not realizing behind the scenes that just because they go home doesn't mean they stop thinking about their work it means they went home and they took a dinner break and they're probably still thinking about the problems <laughs> that they're working yeah. on or they're working on the finance and you just don't see it so having limited capacity and spending a lot more time diving into the weeds on things <laughs> <laughs> You are the end of the buck. You know what I mean? Like, whether you're in vacation or whatever, you get a car, it's like, ah, the structure isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> you need to drop everything and try to figure it out. Also, your whole vacation is messed up. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Because now you can't stop thinking about that. You know what I mean? So, yeah. It's a, it's a good point. And when do you know, because one of the things I struggle with is sometimes I don't know when to stop and go ask for advice because I will feel like, well, if I just keep working on it, I'll figure this out. So do you have a (laughs) a way of knowing when you reach the point where you need to like just stop and go talk to your mentors? You're right. Like I definitely have struggled with that. But lately, over the past two months, I've been growing and focusing on mental health and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that have happened is I'm learning to believe in myself the same way I believe and trust in others. You know what I mean? Like, for a long time, I didn't have that trust for myself. I didn't bet on myself like that. So, for example, if I reach out to you, I'm like, hey, can I be on your podcast? Before I reach out, in my mind, I was like, oh, what is she going to think? Is it like, you know, am I coming across as like 
using her or needy or this or that. You know what I mean? Like you think the worst of yourself, like and the worst of what the person is going to receive. Now I still have those thoughts, and then I think to myself, like, well, is that who I am? Like, no, okay, I'm going to ask her then. <laughs> How she receives it, it's on her. You know what I mean? So now I, I don't know. I think I'm starting to grow and learn that, like, I need to to love and trust myself as much as I love and trust other people. And I think that helps. That's a really good point. I, I'm glad you shared that. Did did you, is there anything else to, that you wanted to say relative to the your design group work just before we go, we transition away from that? So, okay, one last thing. A big part of our work, we have a few clients, right? Like very few, like maybe three. And a, a big part of our work is trying to figure out gaps and uh, fill them. Uh, because a lot of the clients you get are the type of work that we don't want to do. <laughs> and then the work that you do want to do, which is a lot of social impact, is like, uh, there's no clients for it. <laughs> so we help people realize the problems. Like right now, Trevor Noah, who I'm a huge fan of, he is doing a partner with uh, Bill Gates uh, and Microsoft to provide computers to schools in uh, low-income communities in South Africa. So having grown up in these communities, I know that a lot of these schools don't have computer labs, like rooms to, to store this. So what we've done is we've designed a container, we call it the smart container lab. <laughs> so essentially it's a computer container lab made out of shipping container, uh, outfitted for that and uh, 100% powered by solar and so it's sustainable and then we pitch it to them right and it's like ah, right, guys this comes fully fitted everything it's cost this much we'd like to work with you help you scale your work you see it's, it's amazing so that's kind of how we are doing things and, and trying it doesn't always work but uh definitely uh exciting stuff come on with that that's another key to the to entrepreneurship, right? Like figuring out where those gaps are and then pro- like providing solutions. So you constantly speak to your creativity. And I think that's just like another, another way that you've expressed it. Yeah, it was interesting to hear you say that you have self-doubt because when I heard about your story and I learned about you, what I observed is you seem like someone who's really comfortable with taking risk. And you've progressively sought out these opportunities to lead, to do things that are a little bit outside of the box and doing something um, more challenging for yourself. And so I see you as a risk taker. So, you know, for example, like where you are now, you were just selected as one of 200 rising leaders to be part of the second cohort of the Obama Foundation leaders as part of their Africa program. And I mean, that's just one example that you've done a bunch of other things too, including you were a TEDx Johannesburg fellow. You mentioned the Resolution Project and the One Young World. And I know you came from AIS. So why don't we start with um, you telling us about the Obama Foundation role? And uh, I guess the question is also like, what makes you so confident or what helps you take those risks and stepping into those leadership roles? I think the key is to to build mechanisms around doubts, right? So uh, here's a funny story that since I've become uh, an Obama leader and some other 
crazy things have happened since then, uh, which led me to meeting Obama and all this stuff. So it's crazy, but we'll get that to, to uh, later. But since I've uh, done that, a doubt mechanism when I feel scared of something like, like, ah, oh, I know Obama. <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is that like even when i talk to my friends like, oh, i'm trying to do this but like i don't know they will text me like you know about <laughs> <laughs> you're fine <laughs> you got this i do <laughs> then it's fine yeah so it's creating sometimes it's something as silly as that right but it's creating these mechanisms in your mind because it's all your mind before Obama, it was, I've been through worse in life. You know what I mean? Like, I have nothing to lose. Like, if if I don't make the cut out of 200,000 applicants applying for the Obama leaders program, then I'm not going to die. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I just go back to being me. And, um, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't necessarily high up there anyways. Just go back to, to your low self. So, uh, you know, those mental games I play with myself have been very helpful in um, helping me take those risks and, and try out stuff. And, you know, every time I like, I, I got rejected from the Nelson Mandela Washington Fellowship. And then the week after, I got accepted to the Obama uh, Leaders Program. And I think to myself, like, ah, oh, man, my people rejected me. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but Obama got my back, mm-hmm. you know? So there was that, and then faith, you know, like, I, I believe in God and stuff like that, so I was like, well, you know, if God wants me to, to be in this position, it's going to happen. So something crazy happened. So I became part of the Obama Leaders Program. We went to, um, we had the, the cohort meet in Johannesburg, and I remember walking in, and uh, my roommate was from uh, an island in Africa I had never heard of. <laughs> and I started talking to him, and He's like, oh, yeah, man, I run uh, a $5 million company. I work with Google and this, 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 this. I'm like, word, word. And then I walk out. I meet another girl. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm the advisor to uh, the president of Namibia. And then I meet someone else. I was like, yo, all these people are crazy. Like, this is like next level stuff, right? Like, when we're having sessions, like, yeah, I was running this $50 million business, and then I lost it overnight, and then this, this, this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how did I make it? You know? And then I later uh, realized or figured out that like, oh, the program is for people between the ages of 25 and 40. And I was 25. So I was like the youngest part of that course. And I was just like, you know, starting out. So it was a, a huge blessing. And out of that, they wanted five people who were going to come over to Chicago uh, for the Obama summit. And, uh, and be a part of that program. And out of, yeah, I don't know, I think 800 with the two cohorts, I was one of the five who was selected to come over and present about Ubuntu Design Group with the architects that Obama has hired to, to design his presidential center so that we can share notes. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's so things. cool. So that's just crazy. You know what I mean? So it's just like, it's, it just keeps getting better. So shout out to Obizi, President <laughs> Obama. <laughs> and, uh, first lady michelle so yeah that is an incredible story um i'm imagining that you were the one of the few people coming from the built environment architecture specifically into that program so what 
role did you see yourself playing within that group of people who probably are coming from a lot of different industries? I don't know. I think when I got to that environment, more than anything, I learned that there's so much more that I need to learn. There's so much growth that I need to have. Because I think I was telling Michael Risica the other day that architecture or going to architecture school is almost a cult, right? It's like you're taught over and over again that like every solution is solved by design and by architecture, which is not necessarily true because like in order for architecture to function, you need finance, you need uh, you know activists, you need all of these things. So that environment more than me feeling like I'm playing a role has taught me how I'm a part of a, a very bigger ecosystem and puzzle that we have to work together in order for us to, to bring about that change that we want to see. President Obama always says that we are the ones we've been waiting for, right? You know, for far too long, we, we sit around and like, oh, we're waiting for the government to do this, right? Uh, we're waiting for, uh, I don't know, who our superiors to do this, the professors, the this, the Basically, I guess what President Obama is reminding us is like, yo, no one is going to do it unless we do it. <laughs> like, we are the ones we've been waiting for. So that's, that's one thing that I've sort of taken out of that is like, well, how can I then use my skills in architecture uh, to be the one that I've been waiting for? And I think that's how the Ubuntu Architecture Summer Broad Program was born. Because like, it's one thing for me to be out on social media complaining about like social justice and racism and systemic racism and all this stuff. Like, but like, what can I do to start changing that? And then in a very uh, practical way, I could use this program to start chipping away at some of those things. It reminds me of something that I've thought about a lot, which is I've noticed when people complain about things in society and in their work environment and stuff, they'll often say the phrase, um, you know, someone really needs to, or they need to, or um, what we should do is, and all of those phrases imply that this is someone else's problem. I've identified the problem, and I am putting it onto somebody else to solve. And as leaders, I think that what you're hitting on is so relevant that when we identify problems, Leadership is about taking those problems and actually putting them into action and trying to solve them in the world. So I'm really happy to see all the work that you're doing. And I think that you're making a huge impact. And anybody who gets to participate in this program is going to be so lucky to come work with you and learn from you. So I hope that if our listeners are hearing this and they're interested, that they'll go check it out and and apply for your program. Yeah, um, no, thank you very much. I think I'm definitely excited to see everyone apply and to be a part of this podcast as well. And I think one of the maybe last few lessons that I'd like to, to leave is don't feel confined to the box of being an architect. Right? Just because you studied architecture doesn't mean you have to draw buildings as the only thing that you know you use as a tool, either to make impact or if you're, or to make money, you know what I mean? So, and I think the more spaces I get into is the more I realize that, like, how do I, how do I apply my critical thinking skills 
into these spaces and be able to navigate them and, and be able to create that same level of impact. And as you saw, like, we have a very specific mission of creating this inclusive architecture. Uh, but you, as you saw with what I was saying, is like we're not doing it in one way. We're fine. We're trying to find innovative ways. Like I've learned so much about like banking and finance and mortgages, and worked with uh, you know my friend of Wall Street in building his financial models and all this stuff, to uh, you know to working with shipping containers, to learning about autism and and therapy and all this stuff. And I think Vitruvia says that an architect is everything, right? You become a doctor if you decided for a doctor. You become, an, you know, all these things. So I think people need to, because I think I, I say this because I remember when I was graduating architecture school, everyone had like these internships lined up, and uh, I didn't have one because I didn't apply. <laughs> and all these professors were asking me, and I'd already started a winter, but it's like very early stages. It was like, hey, do you want me to connect you to this? Or are you applying? And and I was like, no. I, I'm fine. I don't want to. But I, I was also feeling the peer pressure. I was like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. And I remember talking to my friend, Victor Perez from uh, Puerto Rico. And I was like, bro, like, everyone has this internship and everyone is going to work at an office. I don't want to work in an office. I know I'll just, like, die if I go there. But at the same time, like, I don't have, like, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't even know if I want to do architecture after this. And I remember Victor turning to me and saying, bro, you're the one who's doing architecture. Architecture is not doing you. He's <laughs> like, you know, when, I'm, when I feel tired of this, I can just leave it. I still have a master's, which is credible. I could do something else or this or that or combine it, etc. And even though that was like a very simple statement, but it was affirming to me, it was like there's so much more that you could do. Evelyn, this was your first time hearing One Daily Speak, and I wanted to start by asking you to share what stood out to you during the conversation. Yeah, so I think, you know, in his own way, his story is uniquely his, but it's not unique to an entrepreneur in the sense that especially an entrepreneur that really wants to go out and do good in his community. I think the best leaders and the best entrepreneurs out there really talk very openly and are realistic about all of the struggles and the failures and the challenges they have faced on the path to creating what they have made today. And they are also, you know, like Wandili from, from a very uh, young age, they are also incredible hustlers. Exactly. I, I definitely think that he had that entrepreneurial spirit at a young age. I think the main takeaway for this episode is that social entrepreneurs identify problems in the world that really bother them, and then they pursue these incredible careers in pursuit of trying to solve these problems through their businesses. And Wandeli's business is a great case study in how to take an architectural education and expand that into social justice work and service to a community. Yeah, I also think it's important to call out and highlight the fact that being an entrepreneur means that you're committed to continually learning. So in order for him to build upon his dream of delivering affordable housing, you know, Wandili has had to learn about a variety of different things relative to financing. And he ultimately landed on microloans. And he had to understand enough to 
build a business model around microloans so he can practice the kind of architecture that he really wants to, but also his clients are able to pay him for not only the housing that they need over their heads, but also to enable him to continue to do that work. I also really appreciate that part of Juan Dealey's message to our audience is about mental health and the reality that entrepreneurship can be isolating. This is really true. And this is something that I've grappled with in my first year doing this full time. He he also shared and was very honest about um, his insight and how he manages both his successes and his failures. And I think that's key. You have to know how to push yourself forward when you get, you know, into the isolating part where it's negative um, in order to get to those highs and to the successes, how to keep going when it gets really hard. Um, To our aspiring and current entrepreneurs out there listening, I just want to say that you are not alone. Part of Evelyn and my work in creating this podcast and our our community, the practice of architecture, is to show you that there is a broader architectural community out there, including entrepreneurs. And we hope to bring like minds together to celebrate all the great work that's happening and include those who are looking to um, branch away from traditional practice, because we think that community is really important. And previously, people who maybe didn't identify as a capital A architect were excluded from a lot of these conversations or felt undervalued in some way. And we think that they should be part of this architectural community because we think that they bring a lot of value to the conversation. So another takeaway that I heard from the conversation was this idea that there's value in expanding your community. And to that point, basically broadening your community ultimately helps you become a better architect. And there are a lot of different pathways to achieve this. In Juan Dealey's instance, he mentions how joining the Obama Foundation leaders brought him into a group of 200 leaders with very diverse viewpoints. And for him, he was one of two people thinking about the built environment, and he's being exposed to all of these different leadership styles focused on solving problems that are beyond what he has been focusing on for the past few years of his career. And Evelyn and I both had the same experience when we went for our MBAs and had classmates who were focused on topics that were outside of what we were used to talking about in architecture. Yeah. So for me, when I went and got my MBA, I was in this unique crossroads because I had decided I wanted to leave the profession, but I had no idea where I wanted to go. And I felt that I actually was deeply involved in the AIA. I was coming off of a three-year term of being the National Associates Committee chair and serving on the national board. And I took an active break when I went to school. I made every decision to step away from anything building related, even the social clubs. So nothing related to real estate and development. I didn't participate in the Green Building Club. Anybody that was looking even at prefab business models, I steered clear with. I didn't, you know, I rarely even really mentioned that I was an architect. So people would come to me to be a part of that group. And what it ultimately made me realize was what I actually missed about the profession, but it also provided a clear vision of what I hoped to achieve as an architect in this space. And it's really then when I came 
back to the profession that I began having conversations about the necessity to evolve the way we practice because I could see the need of having stepped away. Yeah, and a lot of my classmates in my MBA program came from other backgrounds like education or nonprofit work, or they were following these non-traditional career paths and maybe sometimes were first-generation college students altogether. And I quickly realized that my language that I was coming into the MBA program with was Archispeak, and I needed to broaden my communication strategy to be better at sharing my ideas that I wanted to within this new community. There were things that were important to them that were different than the things that I had typically bonded with my architecture studio classmates over in terms of like shared interests and values. So I I immediately during that first year had to stretch and, and kind of grow out of my comfort zone and learn, you know, what were the ideas that were important to them and there was kind of like this emerging cultural language that was developing in in the first part of my MBA studies around a new set of shared values that we were discovering together as classmates. Yes, I think that that big takeaway is just there there is a lot to learn from stepping away from practice and take opportunities that you have to to do that. It doesn't necessarily have to be an MBA program. That's a very large commitment, um, both in time and money. But find unique experiences to explore other ways that you can learn from those outside the profession. So before we close, I want to make sure that we mention the applications for the Ubuntu Study Abroad program close on October 30th for listeners who are still in school. I believe you have to at least be a third year um, student. For those who are more experienced and have some additional financial means, Wandili is still looking for sponsorships. If there are any listeners who would like to support a student's participation in that program, we'll be sure to include more in the show notes. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practicedisrupted.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can learn more about other podcasts in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more content like this, you can help us by leaving a rating, review, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about. Thanks for listening and see you next week.